Hey there, cats and kittens. You have found the What Had Happened Was podcast. Thank you very much. Seriously, thank you very much. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and I have another funky episode for you. We sat down with John Turk Logan. Turk, of course, helped many of the biggest names in music get their spotlight nationally. But you know what? We didn't just talk about music. Turk and I had a long conversation about some of the challenges he faced, and boy, were there a lot of them. There was the death of his dad. There was defending his alcoholic mother from men who had no good intentions for her. He was egged as a kid by little boys who didn't quite like his type. He probably got the biggest backlash, though, when he refused, of all things, to play rap music on Central State University's radio station. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a product of Cox Digital Marketing. Let this trusted name in advertising help you meet your digital goals. You can find the What Had Happened Was podcast everywhere you find the most delicious podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find information about this podcast on Dayton.com and on our respective Facebook pages, my own, Amelia Robinson, and also Dayton.com's Facebook page. Okay, now, here is that talk with radio legend John Turk Logan. So first of all, why would you get your name Turk? Well, that question comes up quite often. Um, 69 years ago, my grandmother said he looked like a little fat Turk. <laughs> And the nickname Turk stuck. And then when I went to radio in 1971, the program director asked me, he said, what name are you going to use? Come on, hurry up, give it to me. And I figured the John Logan Show would be such a bore. So Mm -hmm. it it turned into the Turk Logan Show. And at a a very early age, as early as four years old, Mm -hmm. I kept having these pictures in my head of things I wanted to do, like be on stage with whomever was the artist of the time. Now, were you singing or what were you doing on stage? No, I was... I was dreaming. I mean, in your dreams, were you singing or were you? Just... No, I was just the host of the show or or the DJ okay. or the radio announcer. And I kept having these pictures over and over. I used to listen to a thing called white noise. Are you familiar with it? Like background noise? Like yeah. Static yeah. Kinda? And white noise would my, and the white noise then was my mother running the Hoover vacuum cleaner on the tapestry carpet, almost like this carpet here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people use it today for therapy. Uh, when she would turn that vacuum cleaner on for the 15 minutes that it took her to run the vacuum in our living room, and I clearly remember I would sit on the couch and close my eyes, but I wouldn't be asleep. I mm-hmm. would just be floating. And in this floating, there would be things coming to my mind that I wanted to do that eventually came to fruition. But who would believe that I wanted to do it at four years old? And right, and you didn't have very many role models. There weren't many. Didn't have any role models. Right, right. That, you know, at that particular so time. So why did you think you can do it if you d- didn't have any role models? It was a vision I had, and and listening come from though, like and and listening to the guys on the radio at that time that weren't black, but they you know Mm -hmm. still listening to it, and I said to myself, if given the opportunity, I can do that. Um, You know, many years later, but you know, just like I used to tell my students at Central State and Wilberforce, in life there are peaks and valleys, and you know, I lost my father to lung cancer at a very early age. Um, he was 34, I was nine going on 10. And that was a valley for us because we had just moved to Residence Park. I had to integrate Residence Park in the fifth grade. And that was traumatic for me. You know, I lost my father, 
My mother was a blatant alcoholic. She was, I mean, she had it real bad. Was and she then, alcoholic before your, yes. your dad passed? Mm, yeah, so he had to deal with that. I didn't particularly have to deal with that because I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, especially when school was out on the weekends. But uh, And I didn't pay attention to it and didn't know basically what it was until I was the only male in the house because I don't have any brothers or sisters. And we had just bought a new house at 804 Marvine in this park. And then I had to integrate Residence Park Grade School, which was all white. And the kids from Drexel acted like they didn't want me there. And I, I had to endure eggs and tomatoes, fights every day. So I had to fight in school just to survive and just to study and then come home and deal with what I had to deal with and still grieving the um, death of my father. So, What did so, your father do before he died? He worked at um, Station B. He was a uh, postman. Okay. But he also worked at Dayton Tire and Rubber. And we were living in Crown Point on Strand, and he got his leg caught in a machine at Dayton Tire and Rubber, and they settled with him. It was their fault. And uh, the money that he got from the settlement, we bought a, a beautiful home in Residence Park because out in back then in the um, early 60s in Crown Point, we didn't even have an inside toilet. We had an outhouse. In the 60s, you didn't have a toilet. Right, in Residence Park. I mean, not in Residence Park, in Crown Point on Strand Avenue. So um, when we moved to Residence Park in uh, the late 60s, no, in the late 50s, early 60s, it was like a paradise. You know, I had my own little bedroom. We had a big backyard and a big driveway, a beautiful home, and we were the only blacks at the time in the neighborhood. And I remembered how kids from Drexel would come down from Drexel on their mopads at night and throw eggs and holler racial slurs and whatnot about getting out the neighborhood. And my father, I had a BB gun, and my father would turn the porch light out and on and come out on the porch and he'd point that BB gun at them and they didn't know if it was a real gun or not. And they'd scatter. And they'd scatter. And again, he was he was my he- hero and he was my mentor, so quite naturally I didn't have much of that to worry about until he passed away and then I had to deal with that myself. Now, how did he die? He died of lung cancer. And what... At 34, I, wow. Yeah, what I think had happened... He, he was president of his class and valedictorian at Dunbar. So he was very popular. He played football. And back then, they didn't wear a lot of padding back then. And he got hit in the ribs. And the, he had a cracked rib. And the cracked rib never healed properly. And he was a heavy smoker, unfortunately. And a cracked li- li- uh, rib punctured the lung. Oh, wow. And with the nicotine and the smoke, the lung collapsed. Well, so years he, later, he had this injury his whole time. Correct. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And it just kind of built up. Kind of built up. And then I remember him going in the hospital on a Friday night. They were going to remove the infected lung. And, you know, you can live off of one lung. And that was a Friday night. And then that Sunday, he was in a casket in our house and awake. And it was just traumatic for me. So it was that quick? That quick. And so what, he wasn't sick, like, for a long time then? No. What happened was... After they, this is what his death certificate says and what I was told. After they removed the one lung that was infected, um, while he was in recovery, the uh, good lung caught pneumonia and collapsed. Oh, wow. And that's how he passed away. 
So he had a pretty bad death, basically. I would think so, you mm-hmm. know, from from that standpoint. And and it was at Miami Valley Hospital, and I still remember it very vivid for what I went through. Yeah. Not necessarily what he went through, but for what I went through. But not, I knew something was wrong because he had this hideous cough, and when he coughed, you could you could smell the cancer. Oh wow! Yeah. And did you did you even know what death was at that point though? Nine no. years old. Right? I mean, I might have gone to a funeral of of relatives, but I had, you know, I, I was a little boy and I was thinking about little boy things. Right. You know, I wasn't thinking about adult things until I had to start growing up pretty quick when I was about uh, nine, ten years old. So your dad dies and you live with your mom who's an alcoholic. Right. Do you even know at that time that she was an alcoholic? Was because she was drunk all the time falling because over? Because I had um, found the bottles in the house. I had to literally run men out of the bedroom with butcher knives, how they would. Wow. My father worked for the government, so my mother and I got received a government check mm-hmm. um, as a subsidy for his death. And when she would get that money, she would buy her alcohol, and men would come around. And, you know, it was a very traumatic experience for her being sick, even for me, because I'm, a, you know, I'm not much taller now than I was then. And we're talking about guys over six feet tall that, that, that were trying to take advantage of her and, and you know, I'm trying to defend her and 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 and, and survive at the same right. time. And it was uh it was a rough it was a rough time and then we eventually uh moved from Residence Park because she wasn't paying the bills like alcoholics don't. Right. And we moved to the hood. We moved on McCabe in um in Dayton. Now, why do you think she was an alcoholic? Did you ever figure out what happened? I think happened to her? Uh, oh yeah, she had four sisters, and three of them were alcoholics. Okay, so ran in the family. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking that alcoholism is inherited mm-hmm. because my grandmother, her mother, she drank a lot, mm-hmm. but she drank primarily at home after work, mm-hmm. and. I was the first grandson out of the first 17 grandchildren on my mother's side. Okay. So I spent a lot of time with them, and she married her second marriage, a full-blooded Chinese. His name was George Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about the Chinese culture, they prefer boys over girls. Mm-hmm. And so he was crazy about me being the only boy out of the first 17 grandkids. Mm-hmm. So I, and they were both head chefs of restaurants. So I didn't have to eat what my mother and father fixed if they decided to fix pinto beans and whatnot. I could get with my grandparents and, and eat a steak and, and eat the food that they oh, would wow. bring from the restaurant. So, you know, I was kind of... So they met in a restaurant? No, they didn't meet in a restaurant. They were just head chefs okay. of different restaurants. Here in Dayton? Here in Dayton. back wow. Back in the 60s. So and, he would have been your, your step-grandfather? Yes, yes. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it is, because... When I go to a Chinese restaurant, I don't speak Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to talking to some of the owners and tell them that my step-grandfather was a full-blooded Chinese. They kind of look at me strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a bunch of people looked at you strange back then, especially. Yeah, With yeah. having a, um, a Chinese uh, uh, a grandfather. Yeah, and, and he didn't speak fluent English. Mm-hmm. English, he spoke. Spoke broken, well, broken English. Okay. But uh, we fished a lot. We mm-hmm. did a lot of things outside, especially in the summer. 
they lived in Germantown, mm-hmm. and when I could, when I visit them, I could. They had a big German Shepherd, and I could play with the dog and play back in the woods. And they had a lake back there, and it was it was real nice not having any brothers or sisters. <laughs> and with my female yeah. cousins growing up, you could only play with them so much, mm-hmm. you know. And then they started to grow up and become young women, and they did things young women did, and they didn't. Uh, quite naturally, it didn't. Affect I didn't have anything to do with that. So um, I spent a lot of time alone, Mm -hmm. but it was good uh, because when my mother and father were living, I could go and spend the time with them. But then after he passed, I didn't spend too much time with her because of trying to look out after my mother. And, mm-hmm. and the problems she had. So you always became like her protect, the serious man of the house, where you were protecting the house. You know, you didn't. You, I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was we, we were in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And even when I went to WDAO FM, I still had to try as much as possible. As I started my career, when I found out what my career was, um, to look out for her, especially when I got off the air. I mean, I let her live with me for a while when I was at WDAO. And she caught the house on fire. Oh, wow. You know, she, she was drinking and fell asleep with a cigarette. And so I had to get her own apartment, you know, for my safety. And if I was entertaining someone, it was kind of embarrassing to bring someone over to your house. And the mother and your you mother, mother was, the, was, was the way she was. So I had my mother lived 21 years uh, after my father passed mm-hmm. away. So I tried i guess i could have done a better job but i tried to be the best son that i could be during that time and then she passed away in 1977 how she passed just from alcoholism or something that that was part of what goes along with that after you abuse the body so much you know you have uh, cirrhosis of the liver you can have cancer you can a lot of things that that go along with that and it, it started to catch up with her did she know? I mean, did she was she aware that she was putting you in that position? Do you think that you had to almost be her father a little bit? She was aware, okay. but it didn't change anything. She was addicted to the alcohol, and um, it never changed. Now, what do you think that was the result of that was on you and like the decisions you made going forward? What do you think it did to you? I was determined to do the right thing. I didn't have a choice when I lived in Residence Park. Didn't have a lot of friends until blacks started to move in. But when they started to move in in 61, 62, we were moving out. Mm -hmm. And then the guys that I grew up with in West Dayton, their agendas and mine were completely different, you know. Some things we did together, um, but other things I just had in, drilled in my head from my father for the time that he was on this earth just didn't work for me, like mm-hmm. breaking into homes or doing heroin or um, stealing from people. That just wasn't my thing. You know, I I had, even though I saw him every day, even though we all grew up together and we did things, I, I kind of drew the line on how far I would go for some of the things they were involved in. And most of them are deceased now. Oh, really? Yeah, most of them are deceased. And we were very close. I lived with a family of eight, five boys and three girls, or no, six boys and two girls, where my mother was off doing her thing for a number of years. The lady, Mrs. Bruno, took me in as one of her sons. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. And it was it was a blessing for me because she was the nicest lady. And she had eight people and her husband and her 
husband's brother or either her brother who was legally blind to take care of. And she, she, she fed us three meals a day. And when I made a little money, I tried to, you know, throw some money mm-hmm. her way. And then I started working as I got older and was able to give her more money and then eventually get my own place because I was uh, in in the process of getting ready to get married. I had done my stint in the uh, military, mm-hmm. had gotten injured in the military, so I got what is called an honorable hardship. And after that honorable hardship, the lady who I had gone to school with and had dated for a number of years was going to be my wife. And we had a child together who is a beautiful young lady today and a successful beautician of over 30 years. What's her name? Tina Andrews. Is she here? Tina Logan Andrews. Yes, she's here. And um, she's a beautiful girl. And um, she's been a joy. Uh, Her birthday is the same day my wife today is on our anniversary, September 14th. What's your wife's name? Tracy. Tina's divorced now, but up until she married, we celebrated her birthday and our anniversary together, the three of us. And even though that's not my wife's daughter, she treated her like she was. And then now she's divorced and she's back being a single grandmother again because she has a daughter and her daughter has three daughters. So I'm a great grandfather of three granddaughters. And uh, and, and and every and, and all the girls are just, just as good. Sweetie and intelligent and talented and brilliant as they can be. They they, they they come from what I call good DNA. And then Tracy's daughter, my my wife today, she lives in, in Georgia. She has five, and of her five, there are three boys. And the oldest, we helped raise. And all of them have gifts. And, and me being in the business that I'm in and realizing my gift at an early age of communication, I... Uh, make sure that my stepdaughter realizes her children's gifts and start to amplify those gifts at an early age. Hey, so I know you're looking for something to do. I mean, I always am, all the time. Luckily for you and I, there is one place to go, and that place is Dayton.com. We have you covered for what to do, what to know, and what to love about Dayton. If you just happen to like this podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe to it. Tell your friends all about it. Hey, you know what? Do both. Tell your friends about it and subscribe to it. I'm kind of thinking everybody should know about the What Had Happened Was podcast. Speaking of podcasts, back to my talk with Turk. You weren't intending to go into radio initially, right? I wanted to go into radio, but I didn't have prior experience. I didn't have a, an education, nor did I have a big voice. I just had a, an ambition and a dream. I had taken my FCC test, and back then you had to have a third-class license to be on the air. And I flunked it the first time, and you had to go to Detroit to take it. And you only got three times to take it. After the third time, you were basically out of the business before you got in the business. So I crammed, and I went back to Detroit and passed it. That would have been my intro if in the event I had an interview. But I never had an interview and never put an application in. I was just in the arcade, and it just so happened that the Dayton Daily News were doing interviews, street Mm -hmm. interviews, as to what turns you on. And I was looking at a magazine, and I just uh, said radio and television broadcasting. A couple weeks later, an article and a little picture came out in the paper that said John Logan, nicknamed Turk, is looking for a job in radio, and WDAO called me up. But ironically, so they cold called you, then they they called you. Yes. Huh. And they, I 
They I, found your number in the phone book or something? I don't know how they got my number, but they, they called me. They You know, it's media, so I, I didn't even question it. I was so excited. I was working at Frigidaire, and I was making pretty decent money, and I was offered a job in sales. I was not offered a job on the air, and I started off in sales, and my heart wasn't really into it. I didn't do that well, and I wasn't making quota, and um, I just wasn't cut out to be a 21-year-old salesman in radio at that particular time. And then one afternoon, uh, Clay Collins, uh, who's in our Hall of Fame and also a broadcaster, still here in Dayton, asked me if I was interested in the all-night show and backing up a remote broadcast at a nightclub called the Tahiti Hut. And all the big jocks were there then, Long John Silver, Johnny Day, Nick Powers, you know, big-name jocks back in the, you know, early 70s. And all I did was sit at the board at the studio at 1400 Cincinnati Street and run the commercials or read the commercials. And when they took breaks and stuff, they threw it back to the radio station. Well, that was that was great for me, you know, young guy right off the street and and getting into the business. And then after that broadcast signed off, which was about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, then I had the opportunity to host the radio show until 5 a.m., and at 5 a.m. was our gospel program. Let me take you back just a little bit. So they were doing a story about what turned you on. Mm-hmm. What, what, what did the story actually look? What kind of things were people saying turned them on? Like, You know, I don't know. I, I, was, look, I, 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 was, I was looking at a magazine I probably had no business looking at. <laughs> And, and it was best I didn't say what I was looking at at that particular time. And what really turned me on was radio and television broadcasting because um, back in the early 50s, I had uh, this vision of being in the radio. And then it became somewhat more clear when Gene Bagali Berry was on the radio at WING because he was playing a lot of black music um, back then. And then um, we had so black music, right? For people who don't know, what what what, what was black? James music? Brown, mm-hmm. Etta James, uh, Ray Charles, Nat King Cole, that type of music um, that was uh, predominantly directed toward the black market. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was one of the few white guys during that era that was playing black music in in the Midwest. The closest mm-hmm. we could get to it was, I believe, the Hossman and Randy. And they were way down south. And so that's the closest we could get to hearing music. Um, Lloyd Price and uh, uh, Jackie Wilson and that type of music back then. So when he came into Dayton and start, and WING started playing the music then and mixing it, mm-hmm. it was at least something that we could relate to by, as black people. What did you people. grow up on? Did you grow up on, like, what, what kind of music did your parents listen to? AM radio basically because FM radio hadn't come into fruition yet, and WING, basically, whatever, the top 40, whatever they were playing during that era. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't have much of an interest in it, so I didn't pay a lot of attention to it un- until the music that I could relate to started being played. Like, who would they play? Would they play, like, um, who would, what, what the Beach artists? Boys, mm-hmm. um, a lot of... Uh, country music that hadn't crossed over into the general market, Patty, Patsy Cline, 
Johnny Cash, you know, I remember when I was in the military and we were on leave and coming home with a buddy of mine, we played Burning Ridge of Fire all the way back from Fort Dix, New Jersey to Ohio. And, um, you know, that was a few years before I got into the business. And so that music was popular amongst the, uh, my parents. And then they listened to the Lloyd Prices and the Etta James and the Natalie, Nat King, Cole's, uh, Nat King Cole and Nancy Wilson and, and people that were uh, popular doing that and had somewhat general market approach to the mainstream radio. And so the, but the other music does not appeal to you at that point because it didn't speak to you. At, correct. Mm-hmm. But, but understand, when I was in broadcasting school, my uh, instructor, John Ross, worked at WONE Country Radio. And he was a country jock. And I listened to a lot of country music back in the, you know, late 50s, early 60s. So I didn't have a problem with it. You know, it just wasn't my genre of music Mm -hmm. that I chose. I mean, you know, country music was country music, and it was good for the people that enjoyed it. But you didn't have that many choices is the point, though. No, you didn't. You didn't have have a lot of choices. And uh, you knew the the music was there because you saw some of it on television, black and white. Um, and sometimes you did hear it once in a while on the radio. You knew it was there, but you didn't have a lot of choices. Now, did, back then, did you like go to parties and stuff like that around here, or how? What was it like? Where they played this music? Or I didn't go to parties because I was so young. My parents went to parties, and I don't know what they listened to because, quite naturally, I didn't go with them. It was they they were adults and I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I usually would have a babysitter or someone older than myself would come over and stay with me and um, you know primarily what was on television at the time uh, uh, Dick Clark Mm -hmm. and occasionally he may have a black artist on his show and we got a chance to see um, that music along with hearing it so it kind of affected me from that standpoint and I said to myself but taking into consideration um, late 50s, early 60s, Russia was getting ready to send Sputnik up. And I was eight or nine years old. And so I had decided that I wanted to be in the space program. And so then Eisenhower was the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And I sent him a letter. Dear Mr. President, you know, I see um, our competition is getting ready to send Sput- uh a spaceship up called Sputnik, and I know that we're going to get, get in the space race, and, and I like to uh, volunteer my <laughs> services, you know. And he wrote me back, and he said, Dear John, thank you for the interest in uh, the space program, but here's what I suggest you do. First, you get out of grade school. And <laughs> <laughs> then, then you go to high school and keep your grades up, and then you go to college, and then you go to graduate school, and after you get your graduate degree, you apply to the NASA space program, and then after you uh, apply, if you are accepted, then, you know, we can get things done. And I said, well, to myself, you know, after I got this great letter from the president of the United that was big enough for me at my age to get a letter from the president of the United States because back then they put a big gold um, seal yeah. on mm-hmm. the back of it, and you knew it was official. Um but then I got my calculator out, and I said, well, you know, I'd probably be about 20 years old, so I reverted back. Hopefully I could get in 
to another field, and the field was music, and, you know, my first love was music. Yeah, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, too, um, was the whole rap thing, your whole right. not playing rap. A lot of students at Central State probably didn't like it when you oh, were there. More than didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, now tell me, no, tell me what, how'd that even work out? Like, why'd you? Well, even... in 1982, I was in my office uh, here in Dayton over on 1400 Cincinnati Street. That's not too far from your beautiful facility here. I was listening to a song called um, Soft and Wet by Prince. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to another song called Super Freak by Rick James. And something came over me to say, I just didn't want to put that type of lyric content. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, music was funky, but the lyric content was what I was concerned about. So again, I sit down with, I didn't think I sat down with Bud then, but I did sit down with the general manager and the station manager and told them how I felt about this. And they said, well, okay, we'll support you on it, but we need to go a little step further. And they said blatant, the difference between let's make love and let's you know, the other. Because I was wondering, like, what's the difference between soft and wet and uh, sweet, uh, sticky thing? Well, soft and wet is the connotation of sex. Sweet, sticky thing is can be anything sweet and sticky. Like, like what? Like uh, it can cotton be, candy? It, cotton candy. Can be, <laughs> it can be you licking your fingers as far as that's concerned. But that that even those two songs even then weren't blatant. But let me give you an okay. idea of, of, of another you song. You're having a hard time telling the difference between those two examples. Well, you know, you'd have to listen to the lyrics as well. Okay. Because it's, remember, it's not about the music, it's about the lyrics. Okay. And I was sitting on the air playing a song for years, even before I became a manager at WDAO called Come Inside My Love by Minnie Ripperton. Okay. Great song. You may remember it yourself. And I looked up the lyrics just to see if I was correct because this happened to me 35, almost 40 years ago. And she was talking about sex. Well, a lot of these songs are about sex. I understand, but it wasn't blatant. Because you know what? Actually, you're right. Because you know, Cruising yeah. by Smokey Robinson. Yeah. Sex. I didn't know it the whole time. Right. It, it wasn't blatant. And that's where we drew the line. We said blatant. Well, over the years, as you know, there was no room for the imagination. When BET was doing what they were doing with women and the rap music was doing what it was doing and saying what they were saying about F the police and what we're going to do with the bees and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the, that, that wasn't, that left no room for the imagination. I was very protective of one, the license of WCSU. It was my job to maintain that, um, the community that we put the music, you know, we put in their ears. And if the students who were very irresponsible, you know, the my, my colleagues say that the mind is not fully developed until you're in your mid to late 20s. So mm-hmm. their minds weren't developed. And if a student came in to the radio, which many of them did and tried to do, and some of them got away with it, to put music on the radio that had the F word or the B word, or music that was against FCC rules and mm-hmm. regulations, they weren't going to come to a student. They were going to call the president and complain to him and he was going to call me and tell me, well, if you can't control what you're supposed to do, then maybe I'll get somebody else to right. do it. And since I had already had this, what I call epiphany, about the lyric contest, I noticed one of your colleagues mentioned to me, well, I know you don't like rap music. That's not the issue. It's the content, the lyric, because some people really feel that you can hear music with lyrics but not hear the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And that's impossible. 
you there is a difference between listening and hearing. We listen a lot of times. We hear it a lot of times, but we don't listen to it. My job as a radio manager was to listen to what they were saying and interpret it. And a lot of the music and some of it didn't have anything to do with sex, drugs, and profanity, and a lot of it did. And then it segued into gangster rap, and it even got more. It got worse. I feel good about the position that I took mm-hmm. when I came. Of course, students picketed it. They wrote the governor. They wrote the board of trustees. Of course, they talked to the president, mm-hmm. the dean of students, and every anybody that would listen. It never t- deterred me for anything. There were two females that were employees. One is a colleague of yours and my boss who was vice president, black female, later on, years later, called me into the office with the president and said that if I changed the format and started playing more rap music, that the students would be a lot easier to work with. And I looked at the president and said, well, you know, Mr. President, if you mandate that I have to do that because you are the licensee, then I have two choices, either to do it or leave the campus. He said, I'm not mandating anything. I got them walked out the room and left them sitting there on the couch because I i wasn't going. The format was already number one in the market, mm-hmm. you know, and it's no cliche. If it ain't broke, why fix it? There were little minds. I was supposed to change the format to start playing rap music to make the kids easier to communicate with, and that was not the key because all the communication majors that came through the then Cosby Center for Mass Communication, were, their personalities were completely different when they were in that radio station. What they did when they walked out the door and what they listened to in their dorm rooms and their cars or with their, their, their friends or at the parties, you know, I had no control over. When you walked in that radio station, you belonged to me, and you were going to do what I say do, and you were going to play what I say play, or you could just get up and walk out the door. I mean, I wasn't going to put a ball and chain <laughs> on your leg. I was just going to tell you, I'll see you later. But this is the way we do things here. And they respect that today. I mean, you hear me call names off of, of Terry Cope, who's a news director in Indianapolis, of Leandria Williams, who does radio and TV in Milwaukee, who's been there for 20 years, or Ed Spillers, who's in Grand Rapids. O- Omarosa, my opinion, is one of the few black women, or women in general, that has worked in the White House under both parties. Because when she graduated, she was Al Gore's scheduling secretary until Bush came in, and then she left and went out and auditioned for 250,000 people for a show called The Apprentice, and she was picked and became good friends with the now 45. You know, and I'm proud of these kids, and and, and there are many others. These are the ones, as I'm getting older, that I can remember that somewhat stay in touch with me. Now, there are those from Wilberforce, but their communication program was a lot smaller than those at Central State. So... Um, and then when the kids came back later, when they were start, when they had started their families and they came back with their four or five-year-old to homecoming, the first person that they came to see was me, and they thanked me because they didn't want their kids listening to that type of music. And I said, well, I was trying to tell you that when you were a freshman here, but you, you had a bit of a, a time, just like one of my students, the one that was in Las Vegas, he was determined he was going to play hip-hop music when he was at his own music when he was at the center, like many of them. And I told him I was going to take his music away from him. I wasn't going to keep it, but I was just going to take it because Mm -hmm. we had a format for you to follow. 
he brought his music in in his book bag and he was playing his music. So I told my secretary, I said, tell Parrish, that was his, his real name, that I want to see him when he gets off. And when he got off, I didn't see him. He had to go past my office for me to see him. And I said, did you see Parrish? She said, no. And what Parrish had done, and he was a big guy. He's over six feet tall and a big guy. He had gone in the ladies' bathroom. He had taken a left and went down the hall the opposite way, going in the girls' bathroom. The windows pulled out. They didn't raise up. They pulled out, climbed out of that window. And when you climbed out the window in the ladies' bathroom, you climbed into the tower of the radio station that was fenced in and bob-wired and had signs all around it that said high voltage, you know. And he climbed into that lot. Because he was so afraid to get, yeah. to get his music. And he climbed over that barbed wire fence. Mm-hmm. And now that I look at it back 20, 20 plus years from now, I, he could have gotten electrocuted right. being in that area. And so this was some of the things, and we weren't that hard on students. We, we, we weren't adamant, but you have to follow rules. And this was the rule of the radio station. And I was the general manager. So I made the rules. And if you didn't want to follow them, it was okay, but you couldn't be on the radio. You could do what you want to do, you know, uh, in your dorm room or at the parties Mm -hmm. or whatnot, but at WC and it worked. We had 2,300 kids came through there in 23 years and 2,200, like I said, were women, black women, that many of them are still in, male and female, are still in broadcasting today. You know, I'm proud of that that history and that legacy. There's a new general manager at WCSU. His name is uh, Dr. Robert Franklin. He's from Mississippi, and I think he's got some good ideas. I see good things for WCSU under the leadership of Dr. Franklin, and I told him any any history he may want to draw back on or any way that I can assist him. I won't be around a lot, but I'll come if I'm called. Just popping in to remind you that you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast, and I need your help. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on iTunes and other places where you find podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Cox Digital Marketing. This trusted name in advertising wants to develop a custom solution based on your digital goals. And speaking of digital goals, I have two new podcasts to tell you about. WHIO meteorologist McCall Frydas and Kirstie Zantini love to talk about weather. And they do that on their very own podcast. Find Cloudy with a Chance of Podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And while you're at it, take a listen to Mike Hartsock's brand new show, Stay Right There. He interviews local experts on sports and athletes themselves. That all said, my talk with Turk is about to get real, real funky. Did you know funk was going to be a, a, a big thing for Dayton? Or I guess how did that even come about? Well, you know, it's good that, that, that you asked that. People ask me that all the time. First of all, funk was already in America as it relates to the music. Take, for, take for instance, James Brown, um, Make It Funky, or Get Up, Turn Me Loose, or The Big Payback. Mm-hmm. That was all funk. That was all funky. And I was looking at his documentary um, today. And Fred Wesley and Pee Wee, you know, the guys he calls out in, in some of the music, when they started to play with him, they didn't even know what they were doing and what they were playing. Some of them came from big bands, and some of them came from jazz bands, mm-hmm. and now they're playing with this guy, James Brown. It's just, hit me, <laughs> you know. 
So, and they said it. They said, we didn't know what the heck we were doing, but they fell into place, and it became a trademark. Well, that was already here. When I was on the air at WDAO in the all-night show, I was able to take that music that wasn't necessarily being played in the Midwest, and, you know, we had a three-state coverage, so we had a big audience. We had Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky, so we had a big audience. Oh, your signal went that far. Oh, yeah, 50,000 watt. And so um, I was able to take that music, especially in the all-night show when there wasn't a lot of commercials, and started to expose it to the airwaves. And the only obstacle that I had to overcome was Funk was so close to the other F word. Mm -hmm. And the owner of the station, if he thought he heard that other word, he would not wait until you got off the air. He would walk in the studio while you're on the air with the light on outside that says on the air and start talking to you about what he thought he heard. And then after you got off the air, you had to go back and explain it to him. And that's why today I tell all general managers, never reprimand a staff member when they are on the air. If you have something you oh, need. He would literally, while you're on the air. When you're out on the air. Kind of bust into the room. He walk into, this, it was his station. He, so he figured he can do anything he wanted to do. And he did. And never to reprimand a staff of yours while you're on the air because that comes out on the microphone. I mean, you don't feel like doing your daggone show anymore, you know. Like yeah, a, and people can hear you. Well, <laughs> like people can hear you. Yeah, you, right? uh, you would close the microphone and turn it down uh -huh. because he might say a few choice words, but it was your personality that was being reprimanded. And you can't say, hey, everything's great. 107.7, here I am. I'm having a great time. When, you're, when the owner of the station just rings you up one side and down the other for something he thought he heard. He, well, how deep would he get? Would he be calling you outside your name and stuff like that, or was it just well, like... Well, young man, what was that word you just okay. said on there? You know, oh, it was... too crazy. He didn't get too crazy, but it was bad enough having the owner walk in the studio, because uh -huh. back then, the owner was in the building. Today, you don't quite see the owners because everything's big corporations. Right. But back then, Bud Crow was the owner of WDAO, and, and, and that was his station and WAVI. And he listened to it. He was in the building every day and listened to it. So consequently, um, he he wouldn't walk in every day. But when he was upset or he had been out doing his thing, you know, and felt the urge to do that, he would do it. And he, you know, he was um, he was an interesting character. Of course, he had his general manager Joe Whalen and his station manager. John Jay, and sometimes they would try to settle him down, uh -huh. but you know he was the boss, he was the owner, and so and he they acted like the owner. He oh, did. no question. No. You, you told me before that he that he had a hearing like he couldn't hear very well, right? Well, he was getting up in age. Okay. And as a matter of fact, he thought it was us that couldn't hear very well because we played our music <laughs> in the studio so loud. We had the monitors up and we were bopping and we were having a great time. So he had us all take hearing tests. And are we, you serious? He had oh, yeah. He had us test. all okay. take a hearing test, and we all passed. We had, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I have 161 gold and platinum albums to my credit, and all of them were based on listening to the music. So consequently, um, the problem was his because he was getting up in age. But who was going to tell him? You can't hear, bud. Yeah, <laughs> you know? But that, I, said, I said funk, not the other one. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You may want, because if you said the other word, 
and you couldn't explain the mistake you made, you lost your job. Right, right. <laughs> you only you didn't have a second chance. You it was it, primarily because uh, it was against the law, mm-hmm. like it still is today, to say that on the radio, and it was against FCC rules. And one of the first things, if he wanted to be a good manager back then, uh, other than being a disc jockey was for you to understand the FCC rules and regulations right. and h- how they worked. I remember um, April 3rd, uh, 1974, uh, I'm sitting on the air. It's a beautiful day like it is today. And all of a sudden, the EBS monitor went, goes off. Now, you don't hear it on the radio. I just hear it in my headphones. Okay. And it says something that we do every week, but it says this is a test. Mm-hmm. This is only a test if you had... Had it been an actual emergency, you would have been told of what station to tune to, and I think it was WHIO then. But this time, the EBS said, this is not a test. This is an actual emergency. A tornado has been sighted 10 miles outside of Xenia. Okay. So I had to open the microphone and relay that message on to the audience in Xenia and Central State and Wilberforce. Was it like 1976? 1974, April, okay. April 3rd. Of course, you know, your blood pressure goes up and you start sweating and, you know, I'm in Dayton and the weather was like this, uh-huh. you know, there in Xenia and all hell is breaking yeah, loose. mayhem. And a funny thing happened. Two, two things happened. One in 2010, I'm at Wilberforce, I'm wrapping up a class and the janitor approached me. He said, you know, Dr. Logan, I've got a bone to pick with you. And I, and I said, what's that? He said, well, I was a janitor over at Central State in 1974 when the tornado hit. I said, okay. He said, you didn't say that a tornado was sighted outside of Xenia because everybody was listening to WDAO. I said, where were you? He said, well, I was standing on the dock smoking a cigarette. And I said, where was the radio? He said, it was in the office on the desk. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of looked at him and shook my head. It was no no way he could have heard what I said if if he was standing outside (laughs) in the library. He still had a bone to pick with me. Oh, he still had a bone to pick with me because he was sure I didn't say what I said. And then in 2015, I was talking to a retired police officer, and he reminded me, he said, you know, it was you that, first made the announcement on the air. It wasn't the weatherman at this television station that took the credit for it. It was you, okay? <laughs> a little shade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, you know, of course, I didn't, I'm in radio, and it didn't dawn on me, but people still today in Xenia, Ohio, stop me and say they remember me from WDAO. And like I said, we had a very large rating mm-hmm. and the majority of the listeners proved to be white that listened to WDAO with the black audience that we had also. So you started playing like Ohio Players and Platypus and all those different bands like that. Um, How did you know that th- that was something that um, well, first of all, really, they weren't big nationally when you started playing. Right. How did you know that was something that needed to be played? Well, I lived with it. I was there when a lot of it was recorded. We all grew up together. It was from West Dayton. And so a lot of them knew I was, had been in radio for a while, and they'd say, hey, man, come to the studio and listen to this. Roger would do it. Uh, Satch would do it. Uh, Byron Bird and, and Kim Yancey with Sun would do it. Uh, Sean Sandridge with Dayton would do it. They all would do it. Mm-hmm. And then 
you know, I said, we got something here. Something, something's going on because it was good music. I mean, well-produced music. And then I would go to a lot of the concerts, and they would be, you know, garage bands, homemade concerts. They were good bands, but, you know, a lot of them weren't using their music because their music wasn't being played. They were emulating the Temptations and the Four Tops and back then. But they were so accurate at what they were singing and how they were stepping and so when they started doing their music, um, I sent management down again and explained to Bud Crow, who was very, very, very pessimistic <laughs> about everything, uh, and Joe Whalen and John Jay, and said, look, you know, I, I, I see something here in some of these black artists from West Dayton, Ohio. I think we ought to start giving them some airplay. And their response is, why would we? We're a big station. They're not on Billboard 100. They don't have recording contracts. Mm -hmm. And nobody's ever heard of them. And and so I come back and say, well, nobody's ever heard of them because nobody's playing them. You know, and we could be, this could be something that could be a good community service for us, you know, we're licensed. Build it as good for the community. Yeah, we're licensed like all radio and television Uh stations are in the community interest. And that's why I said it's best that you know a little bit about the rules and regulations of the FCC. And they were um, pessimistically uh, okay with me giving it some some airplay. And one of the first records was a funky record called Pain by Junie Morrison. Uh And then he came out with kind of a quick crossover, Funky Worm, and that crossed over to the general market. And then... The Ohio players came out with fire, another funk song, mm-hmm. and then you know roller coaster and sweet sticky thing, and and then Roger, who I was with when he was little Roger in the Human Body, so I knew he was talented, and I I did the liner notes on his first album Freedom, but then he got that recording contract with Warner Brothers, and they did more bounce to the ounce, and that went double platinum, and when we started putting Lakeside and Fazo and Sun and Heat Wave and the Ohio Players and Roger and Sap on our survey, and we used to send that survey out around the country, other radio stations started to take notice of the groups that came out of Dayton, Ohio, and they started playing it also, so it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when the record companies, one thing that uh, I clearly remember in 1976, Johnny Wilder Jr., with Heat Wave came to a dance I was doing and gave me the, the Too Hot to Handle album. And I didn't play it at my dance. I took it home and listened to it and fell in love with it. Boogie Nights, Always and Forever, Super Soul Sister, all the big hits that they had were on that album. And I took it back to the radio station in 1976 and we started playing it. In 1977, CBS Records, and it was CBS then, invited me to London, England to their conference where they introduced all their gold albums. It was at their convention in London, England. And so I went back to the general manager and I asked him if I could go. And he said, well, what about Paola? And I said, well, they tell me all the attorneys have everything worked out and all we have to do is sign their name. We're not going to see any money. He said, well, if you got to vacation time, go ahead and go. So I flew to Chicago, got my passport, because you can get in four hours in Chicago. And then a week later, I was up, up and away to London, England. And the beautiful thing about it, Heat Wave was in London, England because that's where they started with Rod Temperton and Johnny Wilder. So I was able to reconnect with Johnny from 1976 
And then CBS at the time, now there's Sony, was planning on signing Heat Wave to the CBS label. And so when they signed them in 19, this is now July of 1977, when they signed them, they took the album, repackaged it, and then resent it to me again. And you I had already heard it and already played it. I've been playing it for a year. Uh-huh. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and, and it was a beautiful thing. And then, sadly to say, Johnny came home in 1979 and had that tragic accident, which was uh, the city of Dayton's fault. And uh, they had to pay for that. But it destroyed his career because his spine was severed and nothing moved but the neck. And he was a quadriplegic in the fourth level. Mm-hmm. And what we had said we wanted to do, that if I ever had the opportunity to own or design a radio station, I would build a recording studio in the station so he can come up and record. Again, God bless me because in 1986, I came to Central State. We had a $2.5 million grant to renovate the old school building, which eventually became the Cosby Center for Mass Communication, mm-hmm. named after Camille O. Cosby, his wife, and uh, Dr. William H. Cosby. And I put a 32-track recording studio in there. And in 1992, when we dedicated the building, shortly after that, I offered Johnny a contract to come up and work with the kids who weren't necessarily interested in radio, but they wanted to maybe be a recording engineer or something of that nature, and they loved him. And he was there for almost nine years, twice a week. His wife, Rosalind, would bring him up. Of course, he couldn't drive, and um, he passed away in 2006 of an aneurysm. So we, we were very, very close. So that's how all that evolved because I lived it. As mm-hmm. one of the reporters and photographers said here, Todd, who's a member of the Dayton Black Journalist. He said, well, you know, you lived it. And, I, you know, I was a little boy then, but I remember. And I did. Uh, I was um, just about a, a month ago, a former student of mine at Central State was in Las Vegas setting up a radio station, a radio program. And he was talking to the programmer and come to find out my name came up. The programmer was from Dayton, Ohio. So they called me, and we did an interview, just like you and I are doing, uh, for an hour and a half on the phone in Las Vegas, and I was telling them about how Dick Griffey signed Lakeside. And Dick Griffey was a former pro football player, and he looked like a pro football player. He was a big guy, mm-hmm. nice-looking guy. And, I, you know, in, in my estimation, he was just a gentle giant. Mm-hmm. And when I was talking about Dick Griffey, Dick Griffey's widow was listening to the show, and she called in, and she kind of certified what I was talking about. Okay. And he had been dead. Dick has been dead, deceased 15, 16 years. Small world. And you never know who's listening to you. Right. If your dad could see you right now and all this stuff, because he didn't know about all the stuff you're going to do and the things, obviously, because he, he passed. What do you think he would think of all this? I think he would be very proud because I was told not to go into radio by my, my uncles. I have a cousin that's a judge in Grand Rapids. Before he had gone to Grand Rapids, because this was many years ago, I sit down with people in my family uh, I come from a business family in Dayton, the Logan family, and they had businesses all throughout West Dayton back in the 50s and 60s. And so I respected them, and I sat down with them to get their opinion. I had already made my decision, but I just wanted to hear what they had to say. And, they, and their 
thought was stay at Frigidaire and stay there 30 years and retire and be happy. You mm-hmm. know, this thing of radio, you know. Frivolous. Frivolous. And, but that wasn't the way I saw it. And I went on into it. And later on in family meetings and whatnot, 5, 10, 15 years after, they say, you know, we are so sorry we gave you that advice when we did. And I don't remind them and throw it up in their face. You know, I had an epiphany because I had been asked to come to Dunbar High School to talk about the book I wrote that was my dissertation when I got my doctorate in communication and mass, uh, mass communication and popular culture. And the book was Violent Music Makes Violent Kids. And so I was standing in a classroom at Dunbar and nobody showed up like is normal because, you know, rap music was their thing and they didn't want to hear a thing I had to say. But I was standing in the hall during the break and all the pictures of the uh, previous classes were Mm -hmm. up on the wall. And I looked up and it was the Dunbar class of 1943. And my father was right in the center of the picture looking down on me. He was president of that class and valedictorian. So, I mean, that was worth me even going over there. I mean, I I couldn't have, if nothing else happened and that happened, that made my day. And then in that same year, they were having their 60th uh, class reunion. And he had been dead since um, 1961. He had been dead since then at 34 years old. And they gave me pictures. They called me in to stand in for him because I'm actually John Charles Logan Jr. And I stood in for him. And it was a tearjerker because they gave me pictures of him. And then he marched with Emancipation Proclamation across the bridge some 60-plus years ago. And he was a civil rights activist, and he was valedictorian. And so my father was a strict academician, and he was strict about grades and strict about studying for the time short time that he was on this earth that I had him because I was going to St. John's Catholic School until he passed away and I had to leave uh, private school and, and integrate residence park. So he was strict about that. Now, I wasn't the best student in grade school. I wasn't the best student in, in high school because I just didn't want to be there. Uh, I had something else I wanted to do, and I eventually did it. So I think he would be very proud of his son. I wish he were here. I'm doing some... Um, volunteer work with the ombudsman and we are licensed and trained to go into nursing homes to look at um, the complaints that the nursing homes have been getting about unclean bathrooms and and food bed bugs and things of this nature we're not there to reprimand them by no means we're only there with advocate of the resident of the nursing home i keep having this vision in my head that he might be around there someplace because he would be of that age if in even he was still living, you know, from that perspective. You know, these things, they pay off when you look at the kids and what they're doing, when you look at the elderly and that you can help some of the elderly that can't help themselves. They tend to pay off. To me, it's very rewarding. Right. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming in and talking to me. Anytime. Now, isn't Turk an interesting guy? Told you so. I'm always looking for interesting people, and if you know someone who I should talk to for this podcast, get in touch with me. I can be found pretty quickly on Facebook. You can also get in touch with me on the Dayton.com Facebook page. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a product of Cox Digital Marketing. Until I see you, I'm going to miss you. See you later. Bye-bye.